Hello, and welcome to the History of Africana Philosophy by G.K. Jeffers and Peter Adamson, brought to you with the support of the King's College London Philosophy Department and the LMU in Munich, online at historyofphilosophy.net. Today's episode will be an interview about Alain Locke with Leonard Harris, who is Professor of Philosophy at Purdue University. Hi, Professor Harris. Hello. Thanks so much for coming on the podcast. Thank you for inviting me. Well, it's very exciting to have you on the series because you're a, a biographer of Locke and have worked a lot on his thought. Mm-hmm. Maybe we can start out by talking about his initial intellectual formation. He studied at Harvard University with such thinkers as Josiah Royce and George Santayana. And so that would have been a pretty exciting start for him in his philosophical career. What ideas did he take forward from that education into his later career? Well, first, a lot comes to Harvard with a a good degree of of sensibility of education and desire. But not just from Josiah Royce of Santayana, whose philosophy he's ultimately rejected because it was too romantic and abstract. He also studied with Hugo Munsterberg, both at Harvard and, and was in touch with him in England. I'd say he had a deep interest in literature, which he gained in part from his own history, but also from an English teacher named Charles Copeland. He was focusing on issues of pragmatism and truth, but more importantly, his final focus was on the value theories, on what counts as valuation and how it is that we create different value judgments. So I'd say from Harvard, he gained a greater sense of himself and a greater sense of focus on issues of valuation, which he took with him when he went to Oxford in 1907, where at Oxford, again, Hugo Mosterberg still figured it important with him, but he began to work on what's called Austrian value theory with, with the works of Christian von Edenthal. Uh, he went to Berlin in, in 1911, studying under George Simmel, the founder of sociology. So the notion of a value theory remained throughout his career from that education, early education at Harvard. By the time he does his doctoral dissertation, which he submitted on September 17, 1917, he's criticizing James and Dewey, although he was enamored with him at Harvard, but he's, he steps away from James and Dewey and further deepens the notion of value relativism. Reality for Locke is fluid. So he becomes, he's sort of gravitating towards a relativist position away from the pragmatism of James and Dewey. Yes, he develops his own orientation within the context of pragmatism, which is different than James and Dewey. And begins already from them, with their being influenced, definitely being influenced by them, by their philosophies. He didn't take courses with them because they weren't teaching there. He did attend a lecture by Dewey when he was at Harvard. He attended another lecture by James, at least one of them, when he was at Oxford. But he steps away from the philosophical foundation to create a new one, a new orientation within that tradition. So we're going to get on to talking about aspects of his value theory and especially his aesthetics. But Uh before we do that, I just wanted to touch on the thing that he's probably most famous for, at least in the general public, is that he is somehow given credit for being a driving force behind the Harlem Renaissance. And so I'm wondering whether you think is this true? I mean, to what extent does he help spark the Harlem Renaissance? To what extent was he just commenting on something that kind of would have happened without him? There are multiple answers to that. 
first, yes, he should be credited with motivating the Harlem Renaissance. But there's more than one version of the Harlem Renaissance occurring at that time. And yes, it would have happened without him, but it was the idea of the New Negro. W. Booker T. Washington had also written a book about the New Negro. That was in the air, so to speak. It was a common theme, so to speak. Marcus Garvey was doing the same thing. W. Du Bois was doing the same thing. Herbert Harrison was doing the same thing. So yes, lots of people were talking about the New Negro. And lots of people were talking about a renaissance. A renaissance is the definition of a new person, a new human being, a new conception of what it is to be. Okay, so Harlem simply becomes a kind of foci for that discussion. And it is very important to credit law for the book, The New Negro, 1925, because it fundamentally alters the way in which you see African people. It is a fundamental break. This book changes the dialogue altogether. And it is a very different way of doing it than the kind of Garvey picture or the Du Boisian picture. Locke presents the new Negro in the introduction, in the first picture you see of the new Negro, you have the brown Madonna. Right? This is a beautiful picture defining what it is to count as the beautiful, a black woman holding a child, a dark-skinned black woman holding a child. She's sanguine, she's remorse, she's peaceful, she's strong, she's determined, and at the same time, she's a mother. He gets criticized for thinking of this, right? You know, how are you going to present a black woman as a mother defining what counts as the beautiful, what counts as symmetry, what counts as balance, what counts as poise, what counts as dignity? That's the first thing you see. And before that, you get a pictures of African motifs. So this book changes the dialogue. You get 27 pictures by Reinhold Wiss, a German. So that focuses our attention on especially visual artworks, but yes. he also writes about artworks in, I guess, basically every genre, like poetry, painting, and photographs, as you just said, but also dance, theater, even was involved in putting on theatrical productions. Does he have certain aesthetic principles that he thought should kind of be observed or pursued in all media? Well, the New Negro first, changes the dialogue because it transforms the sacred to the secular. It has poetry, it has comedy, it has spirituals, it has serious articles as well. It insists on folk culture as the source of universal culture. So that changes the picture. It's an aesthetic pluralism as opposed to an aesthetic realism. That is, it's an aesthetic which says what's important is the diversity of kind. It's, we're going to see humanity within the African-American community as complex, not as simple. We're going to promote self-reliance and self-confidence, not the romanticism of the minstrel tradition, not the self-effacement, not the romanticism, not the sentimentality of that tradition. Instead, we're going to promote boldness, aggressiveness, assertiveness, self-reliance, self-dependency, you know, a whole range. His aesthetic principles are formalistic, all right. He wants poise, dignity, uh, form, structure, balance, complexity. But at the same time, Locke is very different than others because he doesn't see reality as complete. He sees it as constantly changing in formation. Do you think that there's even a tension there between his kind of classicizing aesthetic where he's always you know, talking about elegance, form, poise, balance, mm -hmm. symmetry, 
on the one hand, and then this love of pluralism and variety and change on the other hand? Yeah, I think there's not a tension, but a complexity that you have to appreciate. Right? Part of what it is he's saying in terms of the principles of his aesthetics is that you have to see people in their complexity and not in their simplicity. Now, another way of thinking about this is how he saw the book Home to Harlem right, by Clark McKay. On the one hand, Du Bois criticizes it, and so does Marcus Darby and others as being tawdry. Whereas Locke says, look, it shows some complexity. He thinks it's pretty bad too, but you know, <laughs> it has character development. The, the hero marries a prostitute. The hero has, you know, uh, and leaves Harlem because Harlem is a decadent place, not because of sexuality, but because there's a bunch of hypocritical civil rights-oriented black people who are pimping the civil rights movement. They're not very happy about this guy. He's not a dedicated American soldier. He's not promoting racial uplift. He's condemning this Harlem where black people don't own anything. You know, they, they, they don't own anything in Harlem. They're just there pretending as if they've ascended above the folk. So Locke is saying, look, Locke's aesthetic will allow you to see that complexity and allow you. But a Du Boisian, a, a different aesthetic will not. Locke will allow you incongruity, chaos, instability. It will allow you to see beauty in symmetry and also beauty in the constant transition of your condition. That's why you have a new Negro on the one hand you've got some poetry which is promoting spirituality. And on the other hand, some poetry who, you know, might be a little risque. You have a spiritual, which is promoting, you know, God worship. And on the other hand, some comedy. And so this actually separates him, would you say, a lot from Du Bois? Because, I mean, Du Bois obviously is another author of the period who talks about aesthetics. And they disagree about Maybe so far it just sounds like they have different tastes or something. No, they not actually they have a Locke deeper has disagreement. A fundamentally different philosophy, which motivates this form of the New Negro and motivates this form of the Harlem Renaissance. There are other forms now. There are other forms. But his is motivated by his own by his own philosophy. Definitely, Du Bois is an aesthetic realist. Locke is not. Du Bois wants art to show truth and promote moral uplift. Locke wants art to promote reality and simultaneously complexity, but more uplift by virtue of a variety of morals. Another way to think about this, Du Boisian aesthetic, and they're both in some ways elitist, right? I mean, they're both trying to promote something special. But a Du Boisian aesthetic requires a certain kind of moral commitment to specific virtues. A Lockean aesthetic allows for a variety of complexities. Locke is the only one who knows that some of the people in the New Negro are bisexual. He knows this. The others do not. And of course, it doesn't bother him. <laughs> no, no, you see my point. So in a way, Du Bois would say that there is like a, this absolute set of values that should be reflected in artwork. And artwork is good just insofar as it promotes and reflects those values. Whereas as a relativist, I guess you would say Locke thinks that the purpose of artwork is to depict or reflect the complexity of value seen from all of its different perspectives that we actually yes. find in the world. Is that right? Yes. And I, actually, maybe that connects to something else I wanted to ask you about, which is his theory of democracy. Because mm -hmm. I suppose that his 
value of democracy is connected to what we were just talking about, because of course, democracy is a political system that allows for a plurality of values to be expressed and to make themselves heard on the political stage. Do you think that that's a good parallel to draw? Well, it's a fine parallel, but let me think. Of, let me point you to Jacoby Carter's work, Philosophical Values and World Citizen. Locke is certainly concerned with democracy, and he promotes these virtues of reciprocity, cultural equivalences, as a fundamental feature of any possible democratic world. Um, he does a, a wonderful anthology uh, that collects a whole series of articles on different forms of democracy different features of democracy, different ways of talking about ethnic identity, world culture. Okay, but Locke also has a piece called World Citizenship, Mirage or Reality. What does he mean? He's talking about what it is to be a world citizen, not just an American citizen, not just the American form of democracy, but what it is to be a world citizen. Remember, he's coming out of Oxford, for example. His best friend is P.K. Simmet one of the three founders of the African National Congress in South Africa. They are responsible for producing a little journal while they're in college, but Locke writes the piece for the journal called Cosmopolitanism. And in there, he makes it very clear what he means by a cosmopolitan in some sense. A cosmopolitan is not dedicated to the gods of the city, like the Sophists, but a cosmopolitan can be dedicated to each city, each city-state, across those lines. So his picture of democracy now is very, very different than the localized American notion. Um, let's just have citizens participate in the existing social structures. He's thinking of it in terms of world citizenship, where you no longer are committed to romanticizing the delusion of American puritanism and American exceptionalism. Does that mean that he would have actually welcomed something like a world government, like a democratic government, yes. well, like world. the United Nations, but a yes, democracy? Right. He was one of the founders of what was prior to the United Nations. Yes, he was very much a part of that project. I was a member of a number of associations, you know, American Negro Academy, Association of Negro Folk Education, International Institute of African Languages and Culture, the League of American Writers, Society of Historical Research, Correspondent member of the Academy de Sciences Coloniales, honorary fellow of the Societe de Estudio de Afro-Caribianos. So he's a member of a variety of cultural formations. Uh, he spends a number of uh, a year in Haiti, writes this series of articles edited by Jacoby Carter again on democracy. The Haitian democracy is not seen as some sort of massive failure, but as paradigmatic of what it is to be a democracy. They're suffering all right. But he writes these series of articles which Jacoby Carter have now published, you know, in African-American culture, of what it is to be transcendent of this local simplistic notion of the American democracy and the Constitution, where it's the predominantly and paradigmatic kind. It's an interesting contrast, I think, to the pan-Africanism of figures like Garvey and even Du Bois. They were saying, well, let's seek union between diasporic Africans, people of African heritage living outside of Africa, and mm -hmm. Africa itself, whereas Locke seems to be shooting for something even bigger or broader, which is this truly universal pan-humanism, maybe, instead of pan-Africanism. Yes. It's not contradictory. He's a part of that movement, you know, pan-African movement, but also much broader. And he's thinking in terms of rural citizenship and what it is to be a cosmopolitan. So his features of democracy is much more 
fluid and open than theirs. Maybe there's also a connection to going back to his aesthetics, to something mm -hmm. that he says about things like folk music, because he values folk music and he wants to celebrate the way that the particularity of folk music tradition can express the values of that community. But he also wants artwork to somehow express the universal, right? Well, yeah, um, last philosophy and last aesthetics is, you know, there is no set, you, you remember he's a relativist, right? Okay, so there is not going to be this, this metaphysical universal essence, which is undetermined, unaltered, and unchanging. There's not going to be such foundation. One of his primary concerns is how can he ground moral values given the reality of ethical transitions? How is this going to be possible? So what part of his solution in part is to see what many other authors did not see, what happened with the new Negro. He says, I'm going to take the particularity and see what is it, how does it manifest itself as a universal. That's what he does, in, for example, in the Negro and his music, the jazz. He says, look, these are local musics, all right, but there's something about them which can have a universal content. He does the same thing with the Golden Gate Quartet, with the folk music. And he introduces the Golden Gate Quartet. He says, this is... Music that comes out of that hard condition of slavery. But at the same time, there's an intonation which speaks to that which is universal. Can I ask, when he talks about speaking to the universal, mm -hmm. does that mean just that it has universal appeal, like everyone can appreciate it, or does it mean no. something beyond that? It means that it has value for which can argue is generally good. He's not saying that everybody necessarily appreciates it or somehow it's intrinsic to the nature. He's saying... Here is something which can arguably be considered valuable across lines of ethnicity and race and culture. So it's like we have a value like beauty, let's yes. say, and then beauty can only ever be realized in all of these local particular ways. That's right. In other words, there's something systematically misleading about thinking about a generality and abstraction, and then you're going to reduce it to the particular. That doesn't really work a lot. It's the other way around. It's the particular from which you derive certain kinds of generalities, but without romanticizing them and becoming, and he fights against absolutism, you know, dogmatism. He fights against what he calls universality, uniformitarianism. That's also what he does against in the new Negro. The idea that somehow there is the Negro, one Negro, uniform, reducible to this one essence, is defeated in the New Negro. The first article is by a white man. And he also wouldn't, for example, say everyone should start playing jazz, right? Right, it's not going to work. Yeah. Is there a connection there? There's one other area of his thought that I wanted to ask you about. Mm -hmm. And I'm wondering again if this is connected, which is his theory of race. Okay. Because of course, race, I mean, it, one way of thinking about race is that we're talking about a particular group of people, right? Right. And he denies, again, that there's this kind of absolute non-relativistic set of divisions between people like white race and black race and right. so on. Let me give you several features of Locke that's going to be somewhat controversial. One, he's a limitivist. He wants to get rid of race, period, ultimately. But he, he, he missed in 1939, he was a little bit more matched when he was talking about race genius. He missed that. But ultimately, in terms of fundamental philosophy, he's a limitist. Get rid of race. And you also remember something interesting about Locke that's different from all the other persons operating in Black American philosophy at that time. 
Locke's associated with the Baha'i faith. The Baha'i believe that race is a sin against God. Locke had already visited the Middle East. Locke was always a member of the Amnesty Committee his whole life. Although he may not have been a doctrinaire member of the Baha'i faith, he's always associated and affiliated with it. And almost nobody knew this except of the Baha'i. So he's not coming out of the Christian, Black American Christian tradition, where he's looking for a savior. He writes for the Baha'i world. Let's look for religious synchronism, ways in which various religions are common. So he's not promoting hidden agenda, if you will. He's not promoting the Christian motifs of Protestantism. I can have a personal relationship with God, and God's going to tell me what to do. That's not there. He's not promoting this redemptive project. That's why the spirituals are fundamentally secular, among other things. So the next feature of this is that, yes, he sees race as a social construction and a fabrication. It's unreal, but at the same time, it's being used, and we have to use it to work through it. So you have this tension, all right, that's there, because Locke is a race man, but he's a race man who's getting rid of race. I was just going to ask that because it seems like he would just have to reject ideas like Du Bois's black gift thesis or something yeah. like that. Because if, yeah. if the black race is just socially constructed, and furthermore, it's something that we want to get rid of eventually. And presumably other thinkers of the time would have rejected this quite strenuously. Quite yes, definitely. But at the same time, he talks about race, yes, which is like contrary to his own orientation. He's throwing Negro... Recognition and rep representation. He does Negro self-expression, you know, the Negro in art, the Negro in music. He does the brown booklets. So at the same time, he's promoting a sort of ethnic reality, which is not identical to a racial reality. And the, I mean, something else that seems kind of essentializing about his writing is that he often talks about the need for Black artists to look back to, for example, uh, aesthetic motifs from Africa. So you actually right. mentioned it, the new Negro, like the, you know, the patterns of right. African textiles or whatever that they're using as graphic design. Well, remember what a Renaissance is. It is a redefinition of, of humanity, which also includes revising the past. Locke is always connected to Africa. One of the reasons that Barnes, one of the first person writes and dislikes Locke is because he has his own conception of what it counts as African art. It's different than Charles C. Barnes's definition. African art is much more formalistic. It's much more connected to spirituality than African-American art. But at the same time, there are some similarities. So he draws these similarities. He points out as many similarities as he can and as many ways in which African culture has continued within African-American culture, but also the distinctions between them. How is it they're not alike? How is it they're different? Remember, Locke is a very versed with the languages of African people. And he knows that, for example, in the 1800s, there were a large number of African populations with different languages. The Binda, the Mandingo, the, the Hausa, the Yoruba, Arabic. And they spoke different languages, have different religions. They become Christianized. They become Anglophiles. You know, Harriet Tubman doesn't speak English until she's an old woman. Spoke Dutch. A lot of other black people didn't speak English either. They spoke various forms of pidgin language, which she spoke. Um, so Locke is very sensitive to that reality. He's very sensitive to the African-Spanish reality. He's thinking differently about this. And of course, his pluralism would have put him in an excellent position to 
both appreciate and celebrate that, and in fact, to notice it in the first place, right? It's there throughout the New Negro. You know, that's why the book, The New Negro, you see it in South Africa being used as a model of what is to be modern. How does an African become modern? It's at the Bantu Men's Club. The book is being used by African, to be African literary artists. What do you look like to do that? And do you see that as sort of his lasting legacy, that um, this kind of celebration of... I think the last, lasting legacy is, is his philosophy. His value theory. That's right, his value theory. The way in which he redefines reality is a kind of fluidity. The way in which it's possible to see human life as a, a continuing flow. I think his legacy is his aesthetics, the way in which it's possible to see poise, dignity, as feature of the aesthetics and simultaneously see the particularity as valuable as a source. And that's why he appreciates classical work and Italian arts. A bunch of thieves who had a lot of money who could pay for artists to, to, to perform classics. That's what they were. They were a bunch of robber baron thieves uh, who had no class and the aristocracy was broke. So they paid classical artists, Beethoven and Bach, to write wonderful works for them. Um, so Italian artists is full of liars and thieves and murderers. That's all it is. It's the low class Low-class art made into high-class performance. That's what it is. What Italian opera have you ever gone to a play, classical play, where there wasn't murderers and thieves and liars? <laughs> now, every last one of them, she cheated on her husband, he stole some money, you know, they robbed the place. And that's happy-go-lucky. That's the good time. That's the good time. You know, they're getting murdered, stabbed in the back. Who are these people? A bunch of low-class Rich people who want plays and songs performed about their reality—that's classic. That's what he sees, and he finds a way to value all of that. That's right. Okay, well, that seems like a good note to end on, uh, especially the idea that it's his philosophy that is his lasting legacy. We could be yes. more appropriate for our series than that. All philosophies, according to law, are the ultimate derivations philosophies of life. Elaine Locke, nineteen thirty-five. Okay, thank you. It's a nice quote to end on. Next time, we're going to be looking at something that actually connects to Locke in a way because he was a philosophy professor. And we are going to be looking at other figures next time who were professional philosophers in this period. So please join us for that next time. For now, I will thank Leonard Harris very much for coming on the show. Thank you. And please join me and Chike as we look at professional philosophy among African Americans in the early 20th century next time here on The History of Africana Philosophy. <laughs>